0: Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Partly cloudy skies, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, the largest scholarship investment ever received by the Morehouse School of Medicine. It's $26 million, and it will help currently enrolled medical students pay their tuition.
2: On average, our students are graduating with $265,000 of debt.
0: That conversation with President and Dean Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice coming up in just a moment. But first this, on this day 19 years ago, September 11th, now we observe it as Patriot Day and a National Day of Service and Remembrance. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp posted this message on his Twitter account alongside First Lady Marty Kemp.
2: On this solemn day, Marty and I joined Georgians and Americans across the country in honoring the memory of the thousands of innocent lives lost on September 11, 2001. Nineteen 2001. 19 years later, the memory of 9-11 still weighs heavy on us all, but we know that those who sought to bring our country to its knees have not succeeded. In the midst of uncertainty, our country continues to draw its strength from the bravery and patriotism that was on display in the
1: days, months, and years following that terrible morning.
2: Brian, the girls and I are asking all Georgians to join us in remembering the innocent civilians, first responders, and countless others lost, as well as their loved ones who still grapple with unimaginable grief.
0: Other Georgia officials, including Lieutenant Governor Duncan, DeKalb County District Attorney Sherry Boston, and Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr, also posted remembrances, on their social media platforms. And several Georgia fire departments have also posted messages. And earlier today, fire officials from Fayetteville, Spalding, Union City, Morrow, and Barrow counties, well, they all climbed Stone Mountain to honor the first responders who lost their lives on September 11th. This was the sixth annual climb. And this day also marks six months since the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus outbreak a pandemic. WHO has been assessing this outbreak around the clock
1: and we're deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity and by the alarming levels of inaction. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized
3: as a pandemic.
0: Now, back on March 11th, Georgia public health officials had confirmed 31 cases, or presumptive positive cases then, of COVID-19 in just 12 counties throughout Georgia. That was according to a press release from that day, and no deaths had been attributed to the disease. Governor Kemp had yet to declare a state of public health emergency. Now, six months later... 6,204 Georgians have reportedly died due to the coronavirus, and the State Department of Health reports there are 289,123 cases in the state, and there are 26,060 hospitalizations. Of those, 4,776 are ICU admissions. This, of course, is all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, also at this time, new reported COVID-19 cases in Georgia are on the decline. They're down to levels not seen since late June, and deaths attributed to the coronavirus are also declining. However, it's a wait and see regarding the Labor Day holiday and whether or not another spike in COVID-19 cases will occur. Now, there's broad agreement that Georgia's summer spike in coronavirus infections was in part due to both the Memorial Day and 4th of July holidays. So that's why state officials are urging Georgians to get tested, especially those who might have attended large gatherings over the Labor Day holiday. Governor Brian Kemp and Dr. Kathleen Toomey, who heads the Georgia Department of Public Health, issued the joint call yesterday. And finally, some sports news. The Atlanta Falcons will kick off their NFL season this coming Sunday. They'll welcome the Seattle Seahawks at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. With no fans, although it's just for the month of September. Here's Falcons wide receiver Julio Jones.
1: You know, we'd love to have fans there, but unfortunately, you know, we can't have fans at the game um, starting on the 13th. But um, we got to do our job and just go out there and fly around and have fun. Um, we got to bring juice for ourselves and, you know, just uh, keep doing what we've been doing. It's just having fun. Um, like you count been good, uh, OTAs, everything. We kind of combined everything together, everything went well. Um, very positive energy, everybody feeds off each other, Uh, just going out there and just playing for one another.
0: Kickoff is at 1 o'clock p.m. By the way, I picked up Falcons wide receiver Calvin Ridley for my fantasy football team. Let's go, Calvin. I need you, buddy. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. If there's one factor during this pandemic we all must agree on, it's this. The doctors, nurses, specialists, support staff, scientists and researchers, they've all been crucial from saving lives to working to develop hopefully an effective vaccine for COVID-19. And here's what we also know. For those who attended medical school, more than half needed financial assistance. Take last year. The average medical school debt for the class of 2019 was $201,490. That was according to the Association of American Medical Colleges. By the way, that was a 2.5 increase from the average medical student debt for the class of 2018. And that's why a $100 million donation from Bloomberg Philanthropies to four historically black medical schools is so important. And one of the recipients, yes, right here in Atlanta, the Morehouse School of Medicine. Joining me now to talk all about this is the Morehouse School of Medicine President and Dean, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. Madam President, thank you so much for taking the time.
2: It is my pleasure to be here with you, Rose. Thank you for always thinking about Morehouse School of Medicine.
0: You know, the last few conversations you and I have had have been centered on COVID-19 and how to stop the transmission of the virus and and how you all were phasing folks back on campus, but this conversation will be a little bit different. Some Some good news for y'all. Um, before we dig into that major financial gift, you heard that statistic on the average medical school debt. That's not lost on you. You know that it is, it is very expensive.
2: Yeah, so for Morehouse School of Medicine, it's even more challenging. If you can think about this, Rose, the average student who goes to medical school comes from a household income of about $175,000. Hmm. The average student who comes to Morehouse School of Medicine comes from a household income of about $70,000. About 40 to 50% of those students are gonna come to medical school also with pre-med debt, meaning debt that they got in the undergraduate. And that's totally different Mm -hmm. than most students who go to medical school, less than 20% of them will have uh, undergraduate debt. Uh So when we look at our total student based on their household income and the challenges that they have, on average, our students are graduating with $265,000 of debt. Now, put that in perspective to what our students continue to do, though. Mm-hmm. 65% of them still choose to go into primary care. 65 to 67% of them still choose to practice in an underserved community. Now, we're able to maintain their enthusiasm for primary care. Our students can add. And they Mm -hmm. understand that they could choose more lucrative professions Mm -hmm. uh, that would allow them to make more money and to pay down their debt. What this hundred million dollar gift does is give them more choice Mm -hmm. with less stress.
0: Wow. And you factor in other costs besides tuition, living expenses and other fees. You remember those days. I, I know you do.
2: I remember those days. I remember those days, and and you know we try significantly to identify some level of scholarship for students. But when you have a class size of now 100 students per per class, a total of 400 students, it is difficult to find identify scholarships to uh, give all of those students.
0: So let's go back. When did you all learn that the Morehouse School of Medicine was going to be on the receiving end of this? million financial gift from Bloomberg Philanthropies.
2: In January, when Mr. Bloomberg was running for office Mm -hmm. and he uh, visited, I can't remember the time frame, it may have been January, February, and he visited Tulsa, Oklahoma and learned about Greenwood, right, that community. He made a pledge at that time to do something to impact the disparity in wealth between African-Americans and whites, because he will tell you that he was blown away with the fact that Black Americans on the average household had one-tenth of the amount of wealth of a white family. He said he had always thought maybe it was 50%, but he never thought that it was one-tenth. And when he stepped out of the race, he then talked about this Greenwood Initiative. So we, at that time, actually reached out to them to say we hope that his interest in public health continues. And then the pandemic hits and everybody's focused on the pandemic. So around the 4th of July weekend, I got an email from them along with the other three presidents saying that they wanted to have a phone call. Mm -hmm. And that phone call turned into us answering questions about what would be most impactful. And immediately I thought about reducing the debt burden of our students. Of course, we asked for all of our students. They wanted to focus on MD students, but we did ask for all of our students. Mm -hmm. And we looked at different scenarios, and he was really focused on wealth accumulation. Mm -hmm. What would it mean for to decrease in wealth extraction, meaning that when someone graduated, they would be able to start building their wealth versus paying off And then the impact that it will have also on the total community as a whole.
0: You and I have had this conversation before about the shortage of black doctors and especially black male doctors. You said the key is to creating this pipeline even earlier than high school to get those candidates ready to attend medical school. And we're still hearing and seeing that there is a shortage of black male doctors.
2: Yes, it, it continues. It continues. And It won't change overnight, but there are clear pathways that we can create to get more black male doctors. And it starts, I think, with a system that's dedicated to exposing them early on, early as the third grade. Right. Hmm. And then empowering them through messaging of them being able to see themselves in these roles when they are getting to high school what does the counseling look like are we encouraging them equally to what we're encouraging our girls to take ap courses etc and then when they get into college just because they stumble on the first year chemistry or or first year biology course to not let that discourage them to change in their major and then when they take the mcat let's say they don't do as well the first time Mm -hmm. that they are encouraged to take the test again which we see, and I and Rose, I, I point to all of those milestones because that's where we see us failing. Mm-hmm. We are not counseling black boys at the same rate that we are counseling young black females. We don't encourage them to retake the MCAT at the rate that we encourage uh, other groups to take the, retake the MCAT and so they are discouraged. And then we know that there are systemic challenges in the justice system and other places that are creating other pathways for them, right? Mm -hmm. That pathway to to being in the justice system and being in prison. So we need to focus their attention on what will work for them. And I believe that that is the way that we're gonna get more of them into medical school.
0: And speaking of medical school, the importance of institutions like the Morehouse School of Medicine right now for those students? Uh, let's let's be clear, because I know you, we were joking earlier, you said some folks call and said, hey, am I eligible? And they had graduated a long time ago. So this gift is for those students currently enrolled and receiving student aid, correct?
2: So they made their determination of the eligibility based on students who were African American in the class, Uh, let me say black in the class, okay, Mm -hmm. because you didn't have to necessarily be born in the United States, but and the percentage of those who were on financial aid. And so that was the base of how much money we got. However, the eligibility is that you have to be enrolled in school currently at Morehouse School of Medicine. And as I said to our students when we announced this, that even if you don't fall in that category, let's say that you're non-Black, mm-hmm. you still will get opportunity for scholarship because now we freed up dollars mm-hmm. that were usually directed at other students. Now we have a larger pot to utilize in order to fund these scholarships. So it's a win-win for everybody.
0: What has been the reaction from the students? What have you heard? I'm sure you have gotten a lot of emails.
2: Lots of emails. Flowers from parents, (laughs) calls from parents, uh, parents crying, students crying, but celebration, celebration. And it's more than just the dollars, Mm -hmm. Rose, it's the really realization that people are seeing, the students are seeing that others see the value in them. And they see the fact that the data is real. When you have black doctors, that saves black lives. Mm there is something to be said for the study that came out of California that if you had a black male patient and a black male doctor, there was a significant increase in compliance of the patient in adhering to the recommendations. It is very disturbing that if you look at this big study that just came out in Florida, Mm -hmm. 1.8 million births. And what they showed that if you have a black baby that was cared for by a white physician as compared to a black baby that was cared for by a black physician. That black baby had three times a higher rate of mortality when they were cared for by a white physician. Mm-hmm. That is concerning. Now, having uh, an increased number of black doctors is not gonna save, solve that. We still gotta have cultural competence. We gotta continue to train all the physicians in how to be more culturally competent. But it does say to me, we need to get more people on the front line to care for our patients so that they have access
0: to health equity. And how much truth is in what you just said right now with this pandemic?
2: Well, we're seeing some challenges, right? Mm -hmm. We know that Black people are three to four times higher chance of dying. And as I've said to you on other broadcasts, this virus does not discriminate. If you are a black person and you're a white person, you're standing next to each other, someone crosses you with the virus, you have an equal chance to be infected. But because of the chronic diseases that we see disproportionately impacting people of color, we know that your outcome as a black person would potentially be worse. And so we said, wash your hands, wear your mask, watch your distance. That is how you prevent yourself from coming into contact with this virus. And then we know though, When people have gone to get tested, we know that when people have gone in uh, and said, I have symptoms, they have not received the same level of care that others has. And Mm. we know that black physicians are caring for a disproportionate number of these patients. So we're not just concerned about the patients. We're also concerned about what is this going to do to our workforce?
0: Finally, uh, Madam President, I want to get your thoughts on this, the whole issue regarding the vaccine. And we know the importance of it. But what concerns do you have that if this vaccine is fast-tracked, as it relates to the clinical trials, because we've had this conversation before, are enough people of color even being participants to see if the vaccine will have any adverse effects, what concerns do you have about that?
2: So, Rose, uh, since we last talked, I have joined one of the NIH panel's that uh, we are actually having the opportunity to review all the trials. We didn't get to review the first two that came out, but all of the other ones we have had to review. And we've made some clear recommendations to them that if you want to see an increased number of blacks or under uh, brown people enroll in these trials, we have to make sure that we're taking the trial to the community, right? And we have to explain the risk and benefits in a way that's understandable. So when we looked at some of the information, the language was such that even if you had a college degree, you didn't understand the risk and benefits. Okay, Mm -hmm. And then they also had a significant number of visits that people needed to take that were not being responsive to the fact that people had to work people had to care for their children, et cetera. So there were several logistical things that they needed to address. But when it comes to safety, there can be no compromise. Mm -hmm. And so there are enough of us who are in the forefront of this that we are not going to allow these vaccines to come on board without strong protest unless they meet the safety criteria. Myself and other leaders like Dr. James Hildreth, he's on one of the FDA panels. And, and we will send you the information of this so that your readers and your listeners will know that on September 17th, eighteen, a group that is calling ourselves a black organization against COVID, nights of a town hall. I will tell you Morehouse School of Medicine just got approved to be a vaccine trial site. Hmm. And you can bet that we will not be hmm. enrolled in any subjects without assurance that we, first of all, wouldn't take the vaccine ourselves as a mm-hmm. participant in the trial, but we're going to protect our community. So stay tuned. We will probably start our enrollment in the middle of October. We are now vetting which of the vaccines we want to start with in the for the trial.
0: And again you all are going to host a town hall meeting when? Possibly? September 17th and 18th. And this is a national
2: town hall, and I will make sure that my staff gets that information to you. There's a group who is hosting this, and we've pulled together people from industry, the NIH, FDA, people from the HBCU, and people from the community. Mm -hmm. We have the faith community working with us, because we know we need to go where the community is, right? What are the trusted entities that the community relies on for their information? And Morehouse School of Medicine and the other HBCU medical schools want to continue to be that resource.
0: And finally, how optimistic are you that when we enter 2021, we will have slowed the virus, the transmission of the virus? What are your thoughts on that?
2: So I am always an optimist, but I'm an optimist based on science and the reality. So if you looked at our infection rate in the state of Georgia. We are going down, but we're also seeing a decrease in the number of people being tested. And as we open up, I believe we need to test more people often because we need to be able to quarantine people if they are positive. Mm -hmm. And then we need to have relief for people when they have to go to quarantine. They should not lose their job. I am optimistic that if we continue to do these things, we can get this rate to under 5%, which will make a difference. Mm-hmm. And then we can begin to open up even more. Mm-hmm. I do not believe that we will have a vaccine that will be going into multiple people's arms until the springtime. Now we may have something sooner than that for people at high risk or healthcare professionals, but to the general public, I think it probably is going to be in the spring. Mm.
0: Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice is the Morehouse School of Medicine President and Dean. And we've been talking about a major financial gift to the medical school that will help a lot of students with their costs. Dr. Rice, as always, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Rose, for always having us. Stay safe.
0: Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. A recent poll from the Kaiser Family Foundation found 53% of respondents said the coronavirus crisis has taken a toll on their mental health. And you might recall on a recent edition of this program, we focused on wellness within the pandemic. We talked about methods for addressing anxiety during this time. And our conversations concluded an interior designer who talked about plants and how they were therapeutic, a registered yoga teacher and a psychotherapist.
1: One of the reasons why plants are part of my self-care, I guess, routine is because it's something that's outside of myself or something that I'm taking care of that I can watch grow. And I feel like that was a very confidence boosting for me.
0: My client base has definitely increased. And one of the common things that they're saying is their inability to focus. And I believe that the inability of focus comes because right now our mind
1: and our body is in survival mode. I think yoga is even more valuable in this era of COVID-19, because it gives us a way to move our bodies, to breathe in a healthy way, and to quiet our minds.
0: Well, now we're going to continue the conversation with Emma Cephala. She's the science director of Stanford University's Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, and also the co-director of wellness at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. And she recently co-authored a study that finds a specific breathing technique could be helpful for those experiencing increased anxiety. And perhaps we all could really enjoy that. Emma, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure.
0: And as a note of disclosure for our listeners, as always, we recommend consulting your own physician before you make any health or lifestyle changes. And don't tell folks that Rose Scott told me to do this and then I'm in trouble. We'll just full disclosure. (laughs) So, Dr. Cephala, before we dive into your latest research, let me ask you this. You're a lecturer, author, and research scientist who has spent most of your career studying the, quote, science of
3: happiness. Is that correct? Yes, I've really been interested in what brings about greater well-being meaning health um, to uh, human beings so that has been my focus Mm -hmm. as an expert
0: in this field if you don't mind me asking how are you managing your own i guess happiness and mental health right now
3: Well, one of the reasons that I've researched um, breathing practice in particular is that I have found them very effective for myself. I was in New York City um, during 9-11 and experienced a lot of anxiety um, every morning at 8.30 after that day um, in New York. And, and I tried a lot of things. I loved the yoga and all that. But I just found uh, that what was most effective for anxiety uh, was uh, was breathing which is why I have uh, run a number of research studies looking at this effect.
0: Well, you heard in the clip that we played and one of the former guests that we had on who was a psychotherapist who talked about one of the reasons that could be for the anxiety during this pandemic is because we are in a sense in a survival mode. Do you agree Mm -hmm. with that assessment?
3: Yeah, I mean, really, we are in fight or flight mode, right? So fight or flight is that sympathetic nervous activation, which helps us survive. And it was designed to help save our lives. For example, if you're in great danger, your fight or flight is supposed to kick in to help you run run quicker, uh, you know, out of the way of that semi-truck or lion or whatever, right? Um, And during these kinds of uncertain times when there's a lot of fear in the air, a lot of fear through all of our our news media, etc., it can really trigger that fight or flight response. And to be honest, even before the pandemic, people were relying on their fight or flight response, right? Mm -hmm. People think that they kind of need to be stressed in order to get things done. So we really, at this point, are in sort of extreme, uh, extreme period of stress, I would say, more so than usual. But
0: with that mode, there's usually a destination, right? For example, if we had to rush across the street to avoid being hit, we reach the other side, that's our destination. Well, with mm-hmm. this pandemic, we don't know the destination because it's- Correct. It, we just don't know. So is that a reason, again, why the anxiety is probably so high for so many people in this nation?
3: Absolutely. So when things are uncontrolled, unpredictable, that is when we experience anxiety. But the truth is that life brings unpredictable situations all the time, right? And so the question is, how can I be resilient no matter what comes at me? Because life, and I think we've all experienced this, brings unpredictable and challenging situations to us on a regular basis. So how can we train our nervous system so we can be the most resilient and therefore effective in whatever we're doing, Uh, as possible. And so that's where you want to trigger the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the opposite of the fight or flight, the rest and digest Mm -hmm. system. And one of the fastest ways to do that is by using breathing.
0: How often when you have a lecture or you're talking about this and someone says, look, doctor, I have a hard time focusing. I'm not that type of person. I don't have that personality type. Do you hear that a lot?
3: Absolutely. Um, In fact, one of the populations I first worked with in our study um, was veterans with trauma returning from Afghanistan and Iraq. And they don't have time for nonsense. They really don't believe in most of this stuff. Um, But we did a breathing protocol called Sky Breath Meditation with them uh, just for seven days. And after seven days, their anxiety was normalized. Um, In fact, many of them did not qualify as having post traumatic stress anymore. And the results were maintained one month and one year later, suggesting permanent improvement. So there is a lot to be said for just giving. So this breathing, a shot, Mm -hmm. the sky breath meditation is a protocol that involves a number of different breathing exercises that seem to work really well together in terms of benefiting stress and anxiety. And we just saw the same thing at a study we ran at Yale, looking at different well-being interventions, including mindfulness, emotional intelligence, and the sky breath meditation. And again, the breathing protocol was the most effective.
0: So how would you describe it to a listener here who's hearing this for the first time saying, okay, are you just telling me that? I just need to change maybe a way that I'm breathing or or implement this breathing pattern and I'm going to feel less stress and less anxiety."
3: So you can do like a short exercise in a moment of tension and you will feel better. But I will also recommend learning a protocol like sky breath meditation to kind of build that resilience over time. But what I can share with you now is one of those short exercises. We know that our heart rate increases when we breathe in and it slows down when we breathe out. So take five minutes to breathe out slower and longer than you breathe in. For example, breathing in for a count of four, breathing out for a count of eight, Do that for five minutes. Guaranteed you will feel different after. Keep your eyes closed. Yeah, and then again, that is going to help you in the moment. Um, But of course, uh, I really recommend doing a breathing protocol kind of every day because just like going to the gym, you're training your nervous system for resilience. So the sky breath meditation we found to be very effective. And it's just a 20-minute practice that you can do daily, um, just like you might exercise or whatever. um, And to train yourself to be resilient to stress.
0: Now, for those of us who have ventured into yoga as of late, where breathing is so important and we have our normal pattern of breathing. And then in yoga, there is the pattern of breathing where you are to breathe through your nose and push out your stomach. And then when you exhale, you're bringing your stomach in sort of like into your rib cage. Now, for some folks, that that's challenging already. So is this sky meditation is Does it involve changing our regular breathing pattern that we're used to?
3: Absolutely, it does. And the most amazing thing is that we had wounded warriors in our um, study. We had people who couldn't walk. The truth is if you are alive, you can breathe. So anyone can do it. That's just the most basic movement of life that we do every day. We breathe in and we breathe out. It was the first act we did when we came into the planet. It's the last one we'll do when we leave. People may not
0: realize, but so your breath is connected to your nervous system. And our nervous system is at the core of our anxiety. Am I getting that right? Or am I way off base?
3: Oh, you're so right Rose. I mean, this is exactly, exactly correct. (laughs) And and you can actually slow your heart rate and your blood pressure in just minutes with that short exercise I described earlier. We also know that emotions are linked to breath. So you'll, you've probably noticed that when you feel different emotions, your breathing changes. Have you noticed that? Yes, absolutely.
0: I feel like I'm right in the office with you. (laughs) Well, who can benefit from this most? Adults, uh, youth, small children? I mean, you know, I just did a segment with some students last week who talked about they would like to see more reporting on the mental health of college students right now during the pandemic. Uh, but can this benefit all demographics?
3: yes it can benefit all demographics um that's what the research studies show but really i mean when we're talking about college mental health it has been on a steep decline for the last 10 years and has reached a peak during the pandemic 18 to 25 year olds are most at risk for mental health issues Um, suicide is the second leading cause of death for 18 to 25 year olds it's the seventh leading for um, other age groups uh, older age groups so really We really need to pay attention to them. And there's a wonderful organization called Sky Campus Happiness that Mm -hmm. offers um, the sky breath meditation for college students and and to universities everywhere. And at Stanford University, it's actually offered, uh, we offer it through their curriculum there, which is great.
0: Do you recommend this for households, for families to all do together? Or is it better left individually?
3: I mean, I think it's wonderful if people can do it together. The more people in, the, in a family are building resilience and mental health and well-being, um, the, the better the family dynamic. There are kids programs, too. There's a kids program called Sky, Sky Schools. Um, they do a kids program, kids version, and then there's the adult version, which is offered through a nonprofit called Art of Living.
0: As we wrap up, Dr. Cephala, when we talk about wellness during this pandemic, and we talk about ways to, I guess, take inventory of our mental health and our emotional health. What do you want people to remember in terms of taking that first step, the importance of it? Because you say you have the studies to back up that it that it's, it's helpful, that this breathing meditation is helpful. So what do you want to say to one who says, well, tell me the benefits of this and why I should do it?
3: If you want to feel better in the fastest, most efficient way possible, and I think we all just want things that are fast and efficient right now, um, breathing is going to be um, the fastest, most efficient way for you to gain resilience and, and mental health and well-being. And the sky breath meditation we have found to be extremely effective. So taking care of yourself that way um, is going to really be beneficial. And I have to say, the look having looked at the um, signs of happiness for the last decade, there are two things that predict well-being one is compassion for yourself so doing this kind of practice to help you build resilience and two is compassion for others so being of service in the world sometimes stress and anxiety can make us very focused on ourselves and yet when we actually reach out and do something for others who need our help you know whether it's helping a neighbor or calling it a lonely aunt or something you know whatever it is you can do every day um, that is the, the other secret so it benefits you and society so
0: uh, good words to end this conversation on, definitely. Emma Cephala, the science director of Stanford University Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, as well as the co director of wellness at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. Thank you so much for taking the time. Good suggestions there. Hopefully, it'll help our listeners. I really appreciate it.
3: Thank you, Rose. My pleasure.
0: The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The Buford Highway corridor. Well, you know it stretches from Midtown Atlanta through Doraville to the Decab Gwinnett line, well, for about eight miles. It's been named Atlanta's International Corridor by the Decab Chamber of Commerce. It's also home to thousands. We do mean thousands of small, family-owned businesses and restaurants. But it's also an area of the city that's been hit hard by the coronavirus pandemic. Now, back in June, Decab officials reported the corridor made up more than 18 percent. Of the county's confirmed covid 19 cases and of course that also means it's been having an impact on local residents and business owners as well We're well, joining me now to discuss how an organization is trying to help is lily pabian she's the executive director of we love high director pabian thanks so much for taking the time i really appreciate it well, thanks for having me i really appreciate it as well let's just let our listeners know before we went live with this interview you and i talked about our favorite memories of Beaufort Highway, when we first came to Atlanta, there is something special about this corridor through your lens. Tell our listener what it means to you.
1: Oh, gosh. Um, you know, our first home was on Buford Highway. We were uh, with family. You know, we migrated. Uh, my parents migrated from Taiwan to Queens, New York. And um, my aunt was living right behind Kmart. Uh, apartment complex. They're still there and we just heard about it it was it was uh, word of mouth that this was the place to be able to afford uh close to in town um and just you know just really convenient a place to to start a new life so it, and and since then it was we lived in doraville um for many years then moved into uh jimmy carter what back time it was still building mm. um but kind of made our way through beaufort highway so it's always been just a uh, holds a special place in my heart um, and for my family.
0: I think the Olympics is a great starting point because many folks will say after the Olympics is when you saw this shift, you saw a change in not just the city of Atlanta, but all the surrounding neighborhoods. There was a shift in terms of economic development. You start to see things change gradually. What's been your take uh, particularly on that corridor, in terms of the economic development and the changes that have been taking place?
1: For me personally, it was even before that, right? I mean, we, my father, um, who recently passed, well, he was one of the original founding fathers of the Chinese Community Center way back. At that time, he saw the need, and a lot of the community uncles and grandfathers sort of saw the need of a, a community center, and um, and that's where we built it. Uh, it's in Chambly right now. But in terms of change, absolutely. You know, with the Olympics coming in, I remember seeing the first time the signs of International Village was being used and and put up. And we started seeing those changes sort of transcend into even uh, the you know the beford Farmers Market. I remember mm-hmm. seeing, wow, uh, they really they really changed this place. <laughs> it wasn't uh, how we remembered it. And and um, I think there's always good. And bad with change is always the good, bad, and the ugly. I think, you know, in terms of our mission um, as an organization and so many of the the residents and the organizations that work to serve the people of Beaufort Highway, there is a sense of protection, you know, at Guardians. We want this place uh, because this place is a place. It's a place that's been here for 40 years. Mm-hmm. It's endearing to us. It's a place that we've set up our lives. It's a place we go back to to reconnect to identities You know, and I think that that is something that's not really talked about even, you know. um, I have I run into friends that over the years have moved all the way to, you know, Loganville and they still make their way back to Buford Highway because that's where we feel really
0: connected um,
1: to ourselves and to our families.
0: Well, and now comes another chapter that not only just for restaurants and business owners along for Highway, but really throughout the nation for particularly small business owners and, and family-owned businesses, this pandemic now, Director Babian, and are you hearing from or maybe even seeing some businesses who, are, who have closed and may not be able to come back online?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, when we talk about, um, you know, when, people, when we talk about Buford Highway, we've got two sort of large demographics. We've got the Latino um, communities and then we've got the, the, the Asian, the AAPI communities. And um, in particular, the Asian communities felt this um, all the way back in January. At the end of January, it was the Lunar Festival that was going on and, and, and you know, um, on the global scene and in the national scenes, the narratives that were out there in terms of this virus um, and sort of the, you know, just the derogatory words and, and phrases, phrasings being used. I mean, people, um, we had restaurant owners, you know, all of a sudden, you know, seeing a dip in um, traffic and business. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, a dip as much as 40 percent. Between January and March, and that dip just continued to decline. Um, I had, um, a, you know, people reach out. This one particular owner, he was a, he was a, you know, trying to take over his family's business, um, and the baton was handed to him, and he stepped in at the end of November of 2019, and um, he, I don't, he couldn't make the corn, he couldn't make that pivot, you know, and 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 that was a lot of the struggle of the the small businesses was having to. Uh, pivot very quickly, having to organize themselves very quickly and having to sort of reinvent, you know, how they were running and, and, and keeping themselves and staff safe as well through the process.
0: Well, and you all have been tracking restaurant and small business closures um, through your organization. Any idea we've seen a small percentage or is it increasing at a rapid pace?
1: I would say it's, it's, uh, it's steady. I wouldn't say that it's a large amount. Um, I think that kind of speaks to the resiliency of uh, immigrants and immigrant owned businesses. I think that they have the ability to very quickly pivot um, and then that they, they've proven that over the over the last several months. So we do see the the places we love um, they are surviving but again that survival is dependent on folks, patroning um, the restaurants and continuously supporting.
0: Mm -hmm. But at the same time, too, because we see, particularly when you get to the DeKalb County part, uh, you see an increase in in numbers, perhaps, and obviously throughout Georgia. So the concerns about health and safety is another issue. They're at that intersection. They want patrons. They want customers. But also got to make sure that folks feel that it's a safe environment. Even if it's just going for takeout,
1: for sure. I mean, you know, when you were, when you were seeing that sort of revenue um, starting to uh, drip in uh, versus the steady flow that the the area is used to, it was absolutely an immediate impact. One particular El Rey Del Taco. In terms of reinventing themselves, they were able to take some space in the parking lot and be able to repurpose that as an outdoor area. I just saw them very quickly adapting and sort of saying, all right, let's take this by the horns. And um, so you see that level also of that confidence of we're going to run the show the way that we need to in terms of keeping ourselves safe and keeping our patrons safe. So Mm -hmm. I, I do see that being reflected, you know, throughout these months for sure. Hmm.
0: I want to shift for a moment to residents because part of the conversations I've been having with so many folks about this is that households need food. Mm-hmm. What are you hearing in in the community there along Befron Highway? Well,
1: you're exactly right. People are hungry. And part of our pivot our weapon of choice in terms of preservation is storytelling, and uh, with our oral history project, and we pivot straight into essential needs. You know, in March, people were not interested in listening to stories; uh, people were interested in surviving, mm-hmm. and so. We really stepped into um, developing just deeper relationships and deeper ties with sister organizations, and there's so many of these uh, grassroots and even you know big nonprofits that have been here forever serving that we really needed to understand what the needs were and how to to tap into that so we very quickly aligned ourselves and one of the the big initiatives two of them one of them was um we realized very quickly back in march that uh kids you know particularly this area were title one schools Mm -hmm. and cab county at that time you know it was i think their food uh the the labor um unraveled very quickly and so they in in a sense had to rebuild that labor force uh, back in march when shelter in place was happening we have kids that depend on these meals, two meals a day. Um, and so that was a process that, that was stopped. It, it just halted. So we worked with a local organization called Los Facinos, State Buford Highway, and that team. Mm-hmm. And we sort of, you know, I said, you know, well, what are you guys doing? How can we help? We found out very quickly that... Kids, these meal sites that were being created, these buses that were out there that were sending food out and having folks to come get it, you know, they, they were about two to three miles easily away from major uh, communities and neighborhoods. And so how do you, what is the logic there of kids having to, you know, when parents and you, you're talking about families, you know, you know, undocumented or those that are on the front lines that they don't get a paycheck unless they work, right? And these kids, and you can't really be walking two to three miles to, to get their meals. So very quickly, they said, you know, this organization, we said, all right, let's show up at one of the school sites. We showed up at um, Sequoia Middle School and we were ready. I think I had 600 kids on my list that I was trying to impact. And um, the, the person who was, who was leading this charge, uh, we actually, she was actually my violin teacher 30 years ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> We, re- we reconnected through wow. this, so that was really amazing. But she was leading the charge, you know, and so we um, got there and at the end of it, they, they ran out of food. They didn't have enough to give for the folks that were in line and they didn't have enough for us to be able to um, pick up a lot and be able to distribute them. So, you know, it just didn't sit well, you know, Uh, the whole time you think about the kids that we intended to impact, you know, and and that area was divided among um, uh, a lot of volunteers that showed up. And so from there, you you take this story, this, this testimony, and I put it together and I shared it with my board and my board just. You know activate it as they do and connect us put us to the right teams and we eventually were introduced to uh chef linton hopkins of the eugene kitchen mm-hmm. and him and i had a really raw discussion of you know realities and barriers you know at the time a lot of food banks you know if you didn't have the right credentials uh quote unquote right credentials of a driver's license or whatever to show proof of id that you couldn't get the the
0: food, right? So you're saying many food banks require some type of identification just for folks to pick up food?
1: That was the case in the beginning of this,
0: yes. Mm. Now, since that
1: time, um, I have seen um, and have heard sort of that, those barriers being lessened because I think people realized we got to meet needs here. So we created this sort of prototype, this program of delivering 500 meals uh, every single day, between 500 to 800 meals every single day. We, we kicked it off on the weekend of Easter weekend, and it was delivered to... Uh, ambassadors say hey you know here's 500 here's here's 100 meals here here's 100 meals to this complex they were able to send the word out to those that they knew were the most vulnerable the, the ones that really had that need right so mm-hmm. we did this from end of easter through mid-july and the, the, the funding you know it first started off under the lee initiatives um and then it moved into the world central kitchen they had funded it as well and um and right now you know we in, in mid-july um Where it stopped was because there's gap in funding. Mm -hmm. And, but, you know, it was as a result of that, um, as a team, we served over 50,000 meals on the daily and to the doorstep of needs.
0: When you think about this current space that we're all in, and then you think about Beaufort Highway, and then all the concerns, and challenges before the pandemic, and now after the pandemic, what is your vision for this stretch of community
1: Yes, because there's always hope, right? My dream or my wish is that there is a, an anchor here that, you know, I think that we had something that was an anchor that was so focused on food and, you know, things like refrigeration is not an issue where we can we can accept dairy and meat and be able to keep it cold and, and give it out. I, I think that 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 would be something very, very powerful, and meaningful in this area, that we don't have. We have certainly pantries. Um, I know CPACs, they are amazing and they offer a food site as well. But I think we need more of them. Um, because you know the stretch of Buford Highway is when we're talking about the the corridor is about eight miles. That's a significant stretch, you mm-hmm. know, running across three municipalities. We have a lot of different initiatives. We've got Arts Bugh, mm-hmm. the Biz high Biz, um Care High has really been a result of covid and under Care high we really under that initiative we really want to push for some more initiatives for suit to deal with the food insecurity issues here
0: and what about the sustainability of we love buhi you're the executive director you've also got to make some decisions and what's the future for this organization
1: well you know um yeah, you know, I took the, on this position almost a year ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my wildest dreams, I would not, you know, I, we were planning a, a 5K at this point. But um, no, we we absolutely have a, traject- a growth trajectory. And I think that, you know, again, with our collaboration and, and the ways that we impact this area and helping amplifying just from an awareness perspective of the need, of the struggles, of the barriers, you know, we have organizations, sister organizations that serve specific demographics. You know, you get the Latino organizations, you got the the organizations that serve the, the Asian uh, communities. Mm-hmm. And so there is a significant importance for We Love You High in our mission, because we really are looking at this area as a cohesive, even, you know, with the multiculturals all of the 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 communities in between, and what are those interim relationships look like and 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 how those can be strengthened to support and maintain Buford Highway as an immigrant friendly um, home. But our conviction really speaks to who that we are f- advocating for, and that is the immigrant sort of um, character and persona of of just being able to be resilient. and you just keep moving forward. So that's that's our plan.
0: It's a good way to end this conversation. Keep on moving forward. Lily Pabian, Executive Director at We Love High. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good memories of Buford Highway to talk about as well.
1: It was great chatting that with you.
0: <laughs> Thank you for what you all are doing for the community and business owners and residents in that part of the city. I'm sure they all appreciate it. Thank you very much.